loss is one of the most powerful things in the world. It's not good or bad, but it is objectively an incredibly powerful, transformative thing. It changes our lives. It destroys lives. It completely puts us on different paths. Hello, you're listening to The Rare Life. I'm your host, Madeline Cheney. Today, we are discussing life after child loss and all about a topic we touch on a lot on this podcast, grief. And I guarantee there are going to be several things that you hear today about grief that you did not know already. And as heavy as that intro line may sound and the title of this episode may sound, I promise you this episode is a lot easier to listen to than you think. It's surprisingly light and we don't get overly deep. So just throwing that out there if you're trying to gauge if you are ready for this episode or not. This is our third and final episode themed around child loss for season eight. In episode 134 about end-of-life care for our children, we were joined by bereaved mother and advocate Leah Deason, known affectionately on social media as Because of Ozzy. She was gracious enough to return for this episode as well to give us insights on what life is like after the unthinkable happens, when our child passes away. Leah lives in Colorado, works in hospice care, and is a lover of Mexican food and listening to true crime. We are also joined by Cole and Perry, one of America's leading experts in death, dying, and grief. I discovered Cole and her work in another podcast, which I highly recommend for curious parents wanting some kind of intellectual stimulation that isn't caregiving. <laughs> it's called Ologies by Allie Ward. In that episode, Cole taught grief and loss in a way I knew I had to pass along to this community. I had so many aha moments that both related to losses I've experienced in my life, as well as the grief I've experienced relating to Kimball's medical complexities and disabilities. I am sure that you will learn a thing or two about grief in both respects as well, whether that is about your child's diagnosis, their loss, or a mix of the two or something else entirely. I am so excited for you to learn from Cole as Leah and I did. Cole has many impressive qualifications, including being the founder of the School of American Thanatology, thanatology meaning the study of death and dying, and is currently working on two books about loss, one for kids coming out next year in 2024, and another about loss but for adults, releasing the following year, 2025. You can keep tabs on all of that on her website, colinperry.com, which is linked in the show notes, and which is also where you can read her column about death and dying and grief called Grief or Madness. You can also connect with her on social media, and there are links in the show notes for that as well. Cole is a lover of volunteering in the edible gardens at the world-famous Huntington Botanical Gardens in L.A., and her collection of fountain pens. All right, let's dive in. Hi, ladies. Welcome to the show. Hi. I am so honored to talk about this really sensitive and tough topic with both of you here. I know that you both have so much to add to this and to teach us and share insights for, and I'm excited just to dive in. So, Cole, I wonder if you could start off by kind of sharing, like, 
the basics of grief. And it's interesting because in this podcast, we talk about grief all the time. We talk about grieving our child's disabilities and medical complexities, but grieving our child's loss, their death, is something we don't talk about as directly. And so kind of thinking about how those two play into each other and how they're related and how they're different, but specifically you know, relating to the loss of someone, if you could explain what grief is and what that looks like. Sure. So let's talk about grief. So one of, I think the most important things to know about grief is that information that we have today in 2023 is different than our best information that we had in 1950 or even 1980. So I want to start by telling you the most common piece of misinformation that is still taught about grief. And it's this, if people are telling you that grief is an emotion, that is outdated scientific information. We now know that grief is actually like a systemic response. And the definition of grief is that it is a response to loss. And there are six categories that each of us can have symptoms or signs of the grieving process happening. And only one of those categories is emotional. So the six categories that when our grief switch is flipped, it's on, we're grieving, we will have symptoms or signs show up in these six categories. Some of us may only favor one or two categories. Some of us may have like things we can identify in four, maybe all six of them. So that's another thing to know. The six categories are physical, spiritual, social, cognitive, behavioral, and emotional. So physical symptoms, for example, when I'm grieving, I tend to get desperately chapped lips that no matter how much water I drink, no matter how many different lip balms I buy, they just will not like not be awful. And that has been something that's happened through significant losses in my life, as well as like, I would call them minor losses. So that's just like my body's go-to. It's like a pattern now. And so sometimes I kind of notice, like if I ever have dry lips in my life, I'm like, okay, is there something I'm grieving? And maybe I don't realize it. Like, you know what I mean? Mm. So that is the most important piece of information that I want to deposit to everybody today is like what modern grief information is because it really changes the game, right? Because if you're only looking for emotions in your grieving process, you're ignoring the rest of yourself and the rest of your lived experience as you're grieving. But once we're armed with accurate information about what we now know, how grief works in the body, you're going to be better able to be more compassionate and empathetic to yourself and also to others. I thought in the episode that I listened to on the other podcast where I discovered you, that was so mind-blowing to me because I've experienced my own losses in my life and I always thought of grief like, oh, I'm feeling grief right now instead of more yeah. of like I'm experiencing grief and this is how it's coming out in all these different ways, not just emotionally. Yes, yes. And can you give us some more examples too of like all the other sections because I feel like this is so eye-opening to so many people. And I can already see so many similarities to grieving. I think you call them shadow losses, but things that are not necessarily our child passing away, but like their diagnosis and different aspects of that, even just with the physical aspect. So can you give us some more examples? And Leah, if you notice, if you're like, oh, I've experienced that in my grief, if you could jump in and share those examples as well. I think that can be really validating to people. Sure. Yeah. 
Okay. So the six categories, spiritual, social, physical, behavioral, cognitive, and emotional. And these categories apply no matter what age you are, because grief is not a choice. It is how your body responds to loss. Just like when you stub your toe and you bruise, that bruising response is not a choice, right? It's how your body is responding to the trauma. So grief works the same way. And I think it's important to like, think about it that way, because I think a lot of times, and you'll find advice online about this, like as kind of framing it, like grief is something that you can control. Grief is something that you can like make fit into a more convenient box, but it just doesn't work that way. Just like you can't control how you bruise or how big the bruise is, or like, does it have nice looking edges? That's just not how it works. So the first category, let's talk about spiritual symptoms with grief. Typically one of the most, and this is not only me responding to this as a thanatologist, but also as a clinically trained chaplain. If in case people are not familiar, I had a misconception about chaplaincy when I started down that pathway. I thought it was like preaching or there'd be like proselytizing. And if a chaplain is ever proselytizing, they're not a chaplain. They're like being clergy. So I am a interfaith or non-denominational clinically trained chaplain. And the role of a chaplain is to support the person you're working with, their spirituality. It has nothing to do with what your own is. So just mm -hmm. like to say that. So with spiritual symptoms with grief, when there's a loss, that is one of the most common times in life where we will have existential pain or spiritual crisis, where you'll be like, how is there a God? How could there possibly be a God? How could this be part of God's plan, right? And you end up in this, it's a really awful space to be in, right? When you are navigating a significant loss and not only do you feel the absence of support in your personal life, perhaps, but now you're like, there's no way the spiritual being that I have lived my life believing in is supporting me right now. This is the opposite of support. This is harm. So spiritual symptoms often manifest like that, these big sort of life questions. And then people will also end up like thinking about things that we don't typically think about in our day-to-day -day lives. Like what is the purpose of life? Why are humans here? How is it possible that every single human on earth can have a very specific plan set aside just for them? These kinds of big questions that many times the answers we can come up with don't necessarily make us feel better, right? It makes you maybe feel even more alone and you're like, gosh, we're all doomed. So that's a very normal part of the grieving process is to have, no matter what your spirituality is or where it's rooted in. That's another, I think this is going to happen the whole time, all these similarities between grieving child loss, but also grieving a diagnosis. That's one thing I've heard so much. In fact, we have a whole episode about it coming out in this season about the questioning that happens for a lot of people of like, how could God do this to my child, right? Because even if they don't end up passing away, there's a lot of suffering. And so I think that is so profound to be like, that's totally part of my process of grieving this that comes up for so many people when they're grieving something. Yeah. And also, if you think about it, like the best news in the world could come your way. Like imagine you have three weeks and every single week you get amazing news. People do not be like questioning. <laughs> like we have no problem accepting that this is part of God's plan. You know, I'm getting a free house and I won the lottery and this is part <laughs> of God's plan. Right. So we only have these questions typically when we're dealing with the negative aspects of the human experience. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it was shocking to me that I didn't get angry and question things when he died. I think my questions came earlier 
I mean, we started off in the NICU. He was born at 28 weeks, so we did 93 days then. And it was just a progressive situation of one medical issue after another. So I think my grieving process and the anger started earlier <laughs> in questioning things. Why him? Why us? Why is he suffering? Why did we not get to have those normal childhood experiences? So I think I got a lot of that out of the way. And then by the time that he got so sick and we were dealing with so much suffering, so much pain, so many seizures all day and night that I had some sort of peace about it. And I knew that he was better off passing than he was here on this earth. So mine was a little bit different. And I think I had those three years to prepare myself. And that's why I didn't get so angry in the end. Yeah, such a good point to make. And I think that also brings up just the fact that like all of these things you said, Cole, that you may feel some of them or all of them or one of them, but that like when we do experience some kind of spiritual turmoil with relation to our grief, it can look so many different ways, right? And it can come up in very different timelines And because a lot of people do. You have like a few years or months or weeks at least to grieve your child's diagnosis and what that might mean. And those things come up. And then like you say, Leah, like a lot of times those are kind of processed through. And maybe for some people it gets stirred up a lot more once their child passes away. But it's a really good point to bring up too. Yep. Well, and then when you frame the spirituality discussion and then you also invite in your specific religious upbringing, what type of religious influence was in the communities that you grew up in and around? And then what framework does that religious tradition provide for coping with tragedy and trauma. Some religious traditions don't offer much, some do. And so that also adds an additional layer of complexity and pain. And as also, as you know, there are some religious traditions that if you have someone in the community that is born with a disability or with some kind of issue, like people will distance themselves because of what some of the religious teachings within those communities of origin might say. And that like anything in life, right? Like a religious tradition can be something that enhances the quality of your life, or it can actually be something that does the opposite. And I mean, that's could be its whole episode, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Totally. And like one thing I was thinking too, as I was listening to your episode, Cole, about loss, and I was thinking about you too, Leah, where I was like, it feels like people who have a faith that is based in faith in the afterlife, I guess believing that our children will live again. And usually that includes being pain-free and being healthy. I feel like that would feel like, aside from like what we may individually think is true or not true, objectively, that seems like that would be a little bit easier, right? Like rather than feeling like you're never going to see your child again or wondering if you will. And so I don't know if either of you have insights onto that too of like, do you guys think it's easier for people who are deeply religious and keep that religion, right? As we talked about, that can evolve, but that continue to believe that, that it can make it less painful or? I mean, it depends because I can't, and especially as my work as a chaplain, a significant loss, whether it's a big death or a shadow loss, the death of a person or animal that we love is a big death and the death of something, not someone is a shadow loss. Many times those are the catalysts for what lead people down a pathway of exploring their spirituality and or religious traditions for maybe the very first time from a position of really looking at 
do I believe this or is this just all I've ever known? And then what else is out there and what am I looking for from a religious tradition? Do I need it in my life? Do I want it in my life? Am I including it because I feel an expectation? What does it mean if I move away from a faith tradition and focus on my personal spirituality? And what if that religion is right? And what if I'm wrong? Like those sorts of questions are very, very common, particularly after a loss. Loss in life is actually an incredible fuel. It's a fuel we didn't ask for. (laughs) It's a fuel that we didn't choose, but it landed on our laps. And this is why so many of the most beautiful things in the world from hugely impactful nonprofits, from beautiful songs and beautiful pieces of artwork and sculptures, they come from grievers. They come from people that are in the pits of hell, of loss. And you end up with this, it's like this weird form of energy grief is. It's not the same as like the energy that you have when you have a really good night's sleep and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to do laundry and go for a walk. Grief is this really weird form of energy. And it's really beautiful to live in a world where we get to see how people transform some of the most traumatizing and awful parts of being a human into things that help and enrich the lives of others. Leah, have you experienced that? Yeah, I know that like your journey has been slower, maybe come to that kind of thing, but have you felt that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's taken me almost to this point to finally kind of wake up and live again or to have the motivation to even live again. But I think my faith has been the one constant. So that's a personal choice for me. And it's actually gotten me through some of the darkest times in my life. I think I just made the decision pretty early on that I knew that, in my opinion, Ozzy was going to heaven where he was completely healed and pain-free and not suffering. And he was running and laughing and doing all the things that I never got a chance to see. And I made the decision that I want to live my life based on my religious beliefs so that I can be reunited with him again. And that gives me hope for the future where I didn't have any. It gives me faith in reuniting with him and being able to hold him again. So it's really what keeps me motivated and what keeps me going forward. That is so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Belief is so important for physical, mental, and emotional health. It doesn't matter what what the belief is in. And so this is something I like to, if I'm ever asked, able to share with grievers. Like belief in something is necessary for life to be lived, not just living, but being alive. Whether that belief is connected to a religious tradition or a spiritual tradition, or I just graduated from the California Master Gardener program. So I did that. And I cannot tell you the number of people that were in the program with me who were in it because they had lost something in life. They were grieving something and they found gardening as this thing that is what they believed in. Like they had the seeds that they needed to start. And then, well, I need to transplant these little baby plants. And then it just kind of gives you that thing that makes sense to you. That's the key. Does it make sense to you? then you need more of that in your life. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or feels. It doesn't matter if we have a scientific study to back any of it up. What just matters is does it calm your soul? Yeah, 
And I love that you did mention that in the other podcast, you were talking about finding something like that, that you can believe in, whether that is a traditional religion or faith or, you know, your plants, like loving that and taking care of those and nurturing those and having something before and during and after a loss that you can kind of hold on to and find comfort and soothing and meaning. Yeah, that's spiritual. (laughs) That's the spiritual category that we just (laughs) talked about. So yeah, like it sounds like it's a very simple framework for how we understand grief, right? These signs and symptoms in six categories, but we've only just talked about the spiritual sort of bucket. And I mean, you can see that that can be a really vastly huge, complicated category for any one person. It could also be a very cut and dry, simple, small sort of thing for somebody because every person embodies and connects to and relates to spirituality completely different. You cannot compare apples to apples basically ever particularly in that category. And that's why I think it's beautiful. And I also think it's one of the most wonderful ways to get to know somebody is not just like learning about the losses that they have survived, but like how special is it to come to know somebody through what their spirituality is, whatever it is, you know, like that's a beautiful way to get to know another human being. Yes. Yes. Cause it's so personal. Like it's something right at your core. So I agree with that. Yes. Okay, let's head to another section then, because, yeah, we could talk about that forever. (laughs) Let's do social next. So there are signs within the social sort of category that we all should look at when we're grieving. And sometimes we'll notice the symptom before we notice or accept that, oh, man, I'm grieving. (laughs) Like, that's (laughs) what's going on. So typically with the social category, while in grief, people will either want to like become more social, they will be like, please fill my calendar up, please. I need to not be by myself. I need to be with people. And other people will have the opposite. They will be like, I do not want to be around people. I do not want people to perceive me. I don't want to deal with other people. And sometimes that is the opposite of how you are when you are like not grieving. And sometimes it's just the same, but to a further extreme. And this can also change. I feel like that. So I definitely will go more recluse, which is so unlike me. Like I like to be with people and like feel the energy and stuff. And so in different losses I've had in my life to feel that feeling of like, I don't want to be around anyone. I just want to be by myself feels very scary because I'm like, this is so unlike me. Like I'm not myself. It scares my loved ones. And Leah, I see you like also nodding. Has that been your experience too? Oh, yes. I've kind of categorized my life into three sections before Ozzy, during Ozzy, and after Ozzy because they're such distinct beings almost. I was definitely very outgoing, liked adventure, liked to go out, liked to do things, travel, listen to music. And that's what the majority of my life was before I had Ozzy. And then once I had him, I quit my job. I was his caregiver. I lost a lot of friends. I lost a lot of connections. We weren't able to go out. We weren't able to travel or do the things that you typically do as a young family. And then when he died, it was horrible on me. I had severe depression. I did not want to leave the house. I could not even think about having small talk with anyone. I mean, because I didn't have a job and I didn't really have anything else to talk about besides Ozzy. Like he was my whole world, my 24 seven. So I didn't know what to talk about. I felt like I regressed as a person, just not being able to have those normal social interactions. So the thought of going to a Christmas function or a get together or a family outing, even though it was my family and they understood, it was still really, really challenging for me to even 
want to leave the house. And that was a big shock. And it took me a really long time to be able to even function in society again. Yeah. Yeah. And Leah, like you're reminding me of a somewhat common experience I'd say is like, once you go through a traumatic loss that, you know, I can go into the grocery store and probably most people in there will have at least one grandparent that has died. Okay. Not everybody has lost a child. That is an experience that you're less likely in society to find people that are like, oh yeah, me too. Right. And so the way that people relate to your friend group and like find friends and stuff, the way that you make social connections and the way that social connections stay formed after a traumatic, significant loss like that tends to be permanently different because when you have dealt with a traumatic loss, the Leah, when you said small talk, you just like can never unsee the people that are like freaking out over like the potato chips are stale and I don't have any at this party. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're just like, it's okay. Like just we'll be fine. Yeah. But yeah, it does. It changes. I think forever the way that you relate to other people. Sure. And I think too, especially within the disability community, that adds another layer to it because not only have I lost a child, but I lost a child that was disabled. So not many people understand either one. So that adds an extra part of it. And, you know, I think that's why I have formed so many strong connections on social media with other moms of similar experiences. And I think a lot of my real life friends, so to speak, didn't understand that. They didn't understand my wanting to share Ozzy's story and connect with other families and and just be so open about everything because they just didn't get it, you know? And I think that was hard on them and it was hard on me too, but I'm so glad for the community that I found, especially on Instagram and people that just can truly get it. And I think that like that is such a huge aspect that we grieve in and of itself is the loss of the connections that we had prior to our child's diagnosis or prior to their loss, where those are real losses, right? The loss of those friends that we will never relate to on the same level. Like even I have several friends that I would call best friends and I love them, but I don't know. I'm kind of like, is this something I just need to process through? And like, maybe I'm just resentful and that's something I can fix. Or is this something that I'm permanently never going to feel quite as close to them? Because it's a huge part of my life that they will never understand probably. I think that's something worth grieving in and of itself. It was huge for me. So if you figure it out, let me know because I still have no idea. It was a big loss for sure. Yeah. One thing that I'm really grateful exists in society right now, particularly as it relates to grievers, is social media. Because what did people do in the 1980s when your child has a disability and you're just desperate to find somebody else who is parenting a child with the same situation? How did people find each other? So that's something that I'm really grateful for because I think one of the most meaningful, like sort of sticky substances that helps bond people together so quickly is a shared loss experience. Mm -hmm. Like nothing connects you more quickly to another person when you find out that you both have a dead sister or that, you know, you both lost a mother really young or that your, you know, sibling has the same sort of condition or issue that they navigate in life. And so that is the main reason why I'm very grateful for social media, because it has really, I think, helped improve the opportunities people have to form real meaningful community in which you can be your full self in your grief and your experience. Yeah. And I think like that's probably one of the few like silver linings that I have found in like disability parenting or, you know, for Leah with your situation with losing a child are those 
intense connections that you form with someone. And you're like, I had never experienced that immediate of a connection with someone prior to Kimball's diagnosis as I did after with people who understood. And that is, that's a very profound thing. And so there is kind of like this like really contrasted experience where you are feeling more distant and like a loss of connections with people you were friends with and even your family members before that. And then this newfound community that you can connect so quickly and deeply with. Even more so, I'm actually leaving tomorrow for a disability mom's retreat. There are 33 of us going to Zion National Park. Mm. And it's the first time that most of us will meet. So it's going to be very emotional and so much fun. But um, I value those connections and those friendships so very much. And even though I'm not technically a mother, I'll always be a mother, but I think I'm the only one that has lost a child. So it's still going to be different for me, but it's going to be beautiful. And I can't wait to meet everyone. Wow. Leo, that's awesome. Oh my gosh. And you guys are going to get to be able to cry and no one's going to be like, that's weird. Right. I was going to be like, me too. I have a lot to cry about too. (laughs) So It's going to be awesome. Awesome. Okay. So that's social. Lot to unpack there, right? (laughs) Lot to unpack there. So (laughs) we talked about physical. There are more than 50 like sort of documented physical symptoms that people can identify and attribute to their grief, particularly when you get older and you've dealt with a lot of loss in your life, you can kind of look back and see better patterns. Like I tend to bloat and have digestive sort of issues, like just period when I'm grieving, the dry lips happens for me. Basically anything is fair game because when you're grieving, that is a response to loss and it's systemic. And like your body is this one thing. So if something is haywire somewhere in your body, it's going to have impacts on other things in the sort of chain of command within yourself. So the physical aspects, this is something I wish more kids knew because sometimes, particularly when kids are dealing with like stomach aches and stuff like that. And if there's been like grandpa died recently or a loss in the family, that just might be how their kind of grief is showing up. And instead of sort of like, Imagine how different the grieving experience would be is if we weren't just like treating a physical symptom, but we were like mentioning and bringing up the grief that the person is experiencing be like, okay, well, you know, you're just been having these stomach aches every day since your sister died. And that's part of your grief. Your grief is talking to you. And so it kind of gives you a strong framework to engage with your grief instead of treating it like it's this bad thing that's happening to you because I believe that grief is there to help us. That's why it shows up because it's there to get you through the loss. Grief is not a punishment. Grief is not this like bad piece of software that we all were encoded with. It was given to us to help us through it. And grief is something that is there to be nice to us. And it's something that we should be nice to in return because it is a support system. I love that. I do too. Yeah. And okay, cool. Can you also touch on in that episode, you said that your grief will need different things, different times and different, even just hour by hour and day by day, it'll need something different. And so like how we can work with that and honor it and do what it needs to have. Yeah. So if you imagine that a significant loss happens and your best friend gets word of this, your best friend is grief. Grief is going to fly in overnight, and by the time you wake up the next morning, grief is going to be right there next to you in bed holding you. That is actually how grief functions. And so many of us treat it 
like it's like an extra 20 pounds that we're trying to lose or something like that. Like we treat it like it's this thing we need to get rid of, but it's there to help you. And grief, just like your best friend would be, if you're day to day, week to week, you're not going to want to eat steak and potatoes every night for dinner. One night you guys are going to be feeling like you're just a little over full. You've been eating too much and you just want a light meal, a light salad. That is very much how the experience of living with grief is when grief is visiting. And it's so helpful in navigating a loss instead of like you asking yourself in the morning, like, what do I need? I mean, the answer is to never be living this experience, right? It's really hard to self-care yourself while you're grieving, particularly with traumatic and significant losses. But if you ask your grief what it needs, hey, grief, you're still here today. What do we need? And my favorite phrasing, and this is something that I see people attribute all the time online, people that I've never met before, and they tag me and it's like, oh my God, my work is getting out there. But I always ask, how will you keep your grief moving? Madeline, what do you need to keep your grief moving today? Today, you may feel like, oh, my grief's kind of like not really there. That's great. But ask it what it needs to keep moving. And maybe you need to make some sugar cookies or just like a batch of chocolate chip cookies or something. For me, with keeping my grief moving, a lot of times it's walking and beating is a very, very, for some reason that clicks with my grief because it's like I can sit there and string beads and then my brain can like process stuff in a way that feels more safe. Then if I'm like being like, okay, I'm going to go in this room and I'm going to journal about my trauma. <laughs> that is not always safe. But if I'm just like beating, I'm keeping my grief moving. I'm giving it a little bit of space. I'm not looking directly at it. It's sitting there with me. That is how I try to frame grief for people because I'm not how different it would be if we saw it as this ally, as this thing that is there to help us. And like the social category we've talked about. Sometimes our grief is like, you need to not be around people right now. We will often look at ourselves and be like, I don't want to be around people. People are annoying. But if instead you were like, my grief is here with me and my grief is like telling me I need a little bit of isolation. You know, I need to be by myself. That is a totally different framing because there's no blame, right? Like you're not blaming yourself for having a normal reaction to an abnormal experience. I really love that. And it also very much is in alignment with I think some of the changes that we're seeing, particularly in online communities with how we talk about our bodies and moving towards not even body positivity, but like body neutrality, like your body is your body. And I was a teenager in the early 2000s when like being super skinny and super waif-like was like everywhere. That was like the thing. And in my teenage years, I was taught how to identify what is wrong with your body and then how to like hate parts of yourself, essentially. That was how a lot of us in that time period grew up. And I think that a lot of us have been taught the same thing with grief, that it is this thing that needs to be cured. It is not a disease. That is this thing that we need to get rid of. Actually, you don't. It's a wonderful thing to have with you by your side, accompanying you through the worst times in your life. It is better than a best friend. And so let's flip that. But in order to flip that, we have to be willing to talk about and reframe the way that we talk about our grief. So if we're talking about how terrible our grief is and like annoying and it's awful, it's going to feel like that. But if you allow yourself to open up a little bit to see your grief as the friend that showed up in the worst time of life when everyone else is running away from you and from it, that changes how it feels. I think I'm trying to wrap my head around being like, oh, I love grief. I guess you're not saying that we have to say we love it, but like the neutrality of like 
It's my friend and it's here to help me. Yeah. Because it feels painful, right? Like, yeah. But because I lost my dad at a fairly young age. And so I'm just picturing like Father's Day recently and how that brought up a lot of grief. Grief was definitely there. And I did feel really close to him. I felt awful, but I felt really close to him. So is that what you're referring to when you say that it's our friend that keeps us connected to them? Or can you go more into that? So first of all, I also want to say here, I always have a disclaimer, particularly for people that are very newly in grief, like just a few weeks out or something. Hearing somebody talk about grief like this can be the worst thing in the world because you're like, (laughs) you know what I mean? So I just want to say like, none of what I'm saying is meant to dismiss your feelings, which are all valid, even feelings where you're like, I hate this lady, <laughs> like for no reason, <laughs> like I accept it. Like you deserve that. You are in some of the worst days of your life. Totally valid. But with grief, like in talking about like father's day. Okay. So I think that when a human being navigates and is dealt a traumatic loss, how vulnerable do we feel? Like we just feel rubbed raw, right? Like you just feel so exposed. Grief is a thing that comes in to make sure that we don't mess up, to protect us because we are super hyper vulnerable. We're like little naked people that are fully exposed after we've dealt a traumatic or a significant big death or shadow loss. Grief pops up and is like, we need to not hang out with people. Grief shows up and is like, you're bloated. You need to eat a little bit less, eat more simple foods. Like it's giving us all these cues. Is that actually what's happening from a scientific perspective? No. This is how I relate and talk about this subject that I've studied for decades now and how I have seen that it makes the most sense for people in getting somebody to live their lives with a friend that is inside them, that is with them. This may not resonate with every single person because everybody is different, but I find that it's a helpful way for most people, I would say, like there's something of value. And like, if you're going through your Father's Day experience and grief was there, what did grief have you do on Father's Day that maybe changed the plans? Maybe you had plans to go out and you canceled at the last minute because your grief was like, yeah, (laughs) we're not going to that party today, (laughs) you know? But what maybe was grief protecting you from? And I will say that going along those lines, I tried to ignore it. You know, I was like, no, it's Justin's day. It's my husband's day. I need to like focus on him. I need to be happy. And the more I was trying to ignore it, I just was like really short with my kids and like I feel really off. So when I finally took some, I guess I listened to my grief and went outside and had a good cry and wrote in my journal about how unfair it was and da 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 da. And then I wasn't like, I'm I'm totally good now. We can just like go party. But I, I definitely, I did feel honoring of that. Like it needed space and I created space for it. You were keeping your grief moving. Okay, tears move grief down the river of loss. I mean, tears are wonderful. Tears are so important and a necessary part. And also how many of us have been grieving a loss and you're like, I would pay a million dollars if I never had to cry anymore because I have a headache. <laughs> like my like face is tired. But tears are movement and tears keep our loss moving. And you journaling, writing a letter after letter after letter, which makes a word, which makes a sentence, which makes a paragraph. Those are like little steps that we're taking on our grief journey. And any loss that you ever have at any point in your life is going to continue to be a loss your entire life. So if you lose your dad at the age of 12, all of a sudden the grief will probably show up again when you maybe get married and you watch your husband become a father, likely going to connect to the loss of your own father. When you get older and you see like father stuff show up in movies or things like that, 
very likely that might re-trigger some aspect of the loss of your own father. The losses are things that we live with our entire lives, and the grief helps us make adjustments because we are not the same people we were five years ago. We're not the same people we were when we had the loss. We are forced into continually being constantly changing beings, and grief is there to help us stay tethered to ourselves as we navigate the development of how these losses affected our lives and who we are. Whoa. I really like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Everything that she said is so on point. And I'm not sure if I could have had this conversation 18 months ago Mm -hmm. because I was still in such a deep grief fog and just nothing made sense. Life didn't make sense. I didn't know what I was doing, but I think I finally hit a point to where I knew that grief was not going away and was my constant companion. And I had to make that choice to either learn how to live around that grief and move forward and take Ozzy with me or let it kill me because it was to that point where I had to physically make that choice to want to live again. And I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to know that he's with me all the time, that grief is never going to go away. It's going to be that constant companion. And something that keeps me moving forward and something that keeps me wanting to live and just make the most of every single day that I have and want to continue to create new memories in honor of him. And I can't even remember where I heard this, but someone said to me that he's not here to live anymore. So I have one life and I want to live it for the both of us. And that's kind of the motto that I'm trying to take on now is to live it for the two of us. That's beautiful. I love that. I love that both of you tell your stories because also over the years in my work, there is no medicine quite as powerful as hearing somebody's lived experience. The amount of power, connection, hugs, (laughs) comfort (laughs) that comes from like discovering somebody else who had the courage to tell their story of the worst loss in their life. And then you had the same one and you're like, oh, you're not alone. Like there have been other people that have walked this path before you. And then it is also so powerful the day that you wake up and realize I'm going to do that for somebody else. Yeah. I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to talk about Ozzy. I'm going to be that for somebody else. And then when you are that for somebody else, isn't that incredible? Like I said, loss is one of the most powerful things in the world. It's not good or bad, but it is objectively an incredibly powerful, transformative thing. It changes our lives. It destroys lives. It completely puts us on different paths. So much of it is unexplainable and you'll never get an answer that makes you feel good ever about why somebody died or why you lost what you did. And all we can do is choose to live. That's a great feeling. Obviously within the disability community, it's very common for kids to be on the same trajectory as Ozzy and just having people reach out to me saying, what can I expect? Please share your insights. Like if I can pass along and help them in their journey, just like others did that for me, I think that's the greatest gift that I can give. And, you know, it is sad and it's hard to talk about, but it's also something that I can pass on and be a resource for people. So, you know, I'm always open to sharing our experience and what we went through and to help in any way I can. And it's almost like the least thing I could do. I love the way that that honors Ozzy, too. Like, there's so many people in my life who, either close or more at a distance, I've seen them experience a huge loss and then 
to be doing something that's really great in the world. Like back to your point, Cole, earlier in the episode, but like doing something like for Leah, like for you to be sharing with other families and helping them through it, where you're like, that is honoring that child or that person that you lost in probably the best way you could, right? And I just love picturing the way that that keeps that person close. And I mean, helping others, I'm sure that's what they would be happy with you doing with that grief at some point. And I think like also like people who may be listening like right after a loss or right before, I mean, they'd be like, I don't want to help anyone. I don't want this to be good at all. I don't want to ever do anything like that. But I think if that can happen at some point down the road, you know, like a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, even helping one person is incredibly meaningful. And I think it feels so cathartic. Yeah. And to anyone that is in that where you're like, nope, 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 that is your grief protecting you right now because you are not ready to be in that role, to be in that position. It takes your brain a while to process and integrate and like cope. It takes a while to cope with what has happened. And this is something in the death, dying, grief, and loss world. A lot of times people will have a significant loss and then they're like, I want to be a funeral director now, or I want to be a grief counselor, or they want to work with death, dying, grief, and loss in some way because they just lived it. Most of the programs or the programs that are professional, they will not allow people to enter the program until they're at least usually a year out from the loss. Because it makes sense, right? Like think about yourselves when you were back like in the thick of it. Like grieving people are a vulnerable population. This is why you should never make like super major decisions like really up close to a significant loss because you're just haywire. And that's why grief is there. It's there to protect you. And that's why your grief at the beginning of your journey is going to be like, no, you don't want any of this. Your grief will make you not like it. Your grief will make you be like, no, I don't want to help anybody. But eventually your grief is then going to be like, hey, so, you know, maybe you could talk about your story today in the grocery store. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like grief will help get you there. It's so crazy that you said that because when I had to find a new job, my former career was in medical sales and I really had no idea what I wanted to get back into once Ozzy passed. And the only thing that I could think of is, okay, what have I experienced since he was alive? And I started seeking out jobs in those fields. And my counselor was like, yeah, maybe that's not such a great idea for you to be doing right now. Maybe you need to be an advocate or raise awareness or walk for epilepsy or do whatever as your outside thing, but not necessarily your job. But now I'm in a much better space and I actually work in hospice sales. So I yes. was on hospice for eight months and it really touched my heart. And just to be able to help families through that process and care for them in the way that we were so graciously cared for as beyond meaningful. So it's been a full circle moment for me over the past two years. Yeah. Leah, do you feel like the distance from none of these losses are ever like, oh, it was just this one minute in time. You know what I mean? But it was like, do you feel like in your role now that you're glad that you waited or didn't do it like right away? How does that feel for you? Yeah, I feel like I'm glad I waited specifically for hospice and we don't do pediatric hospice. So mm -hmm. it's a little bit different, but I also lost my dad to colon cancer in 2013. So I've experienced it on the adult and pediatric side. So I don't think I could have done it back then, but my previous job, I worked for prematurity awareness and he was a preemie. So it was still very triggering for me. And I thought, okay, well, he made it out of the prematurity stage and we were out of the NICU and that 
was traumatic, but we made it through it. So I didn't yeah. think it would really trigger me as much as it did, but it probably wasn't the best idea looking back on it now, but it served its purpose and got me to where I am today. Yep. Beautiful. So then we have two more categories, behavioral and cognitive. So behavior changes are very normal while you're grieving. Probably the most common behavioral change is like bedtimes. You may be like normally an early bird and then you like to go to bed early, get up early. While grieving, you may not sleep until 3 a.m. You may be sleeping in. That's probably one of the more common behavioral changes. That's interesting. I'm like, oh, yeah. Okay. Does that resonate? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And kids, especially like kids, when kids are grieving, that is, it's like bedtimes be really difficult, which is like the time when parents need sleep. You know, if you've had a loss in the family and you're like, please don't have a sleep disruption, but that's grief, you know? So that's a pretty simple category. And then uh, cognitive is the next category. Cognitive means brain. So one of the most important things to know about grief is it's stress. It is a high intensity period of stress on your brain. If you like think about when you were in college or like about to graduate from high school and it was like your last finals period, put yourself in, in your teenage self and just like your whole world was like, oh my God, I'm so stressed. Like I have finals and this is like the biggest thing that's ever happened to you, right? Like you're just trying to like pass these tests. Well, that's a very high level period of day-to-day -day stress that you're under. You're constantly living under the thumb of like, if you don't pass these exams, you fail as an adult, <laughs> you know, like the pressure is there. Grief is a lot like that. When you're grieving, your brain is stressed. You don't have as much mental bandwidth for stuff. That's why your grief is like, we need to not be around people at the family party today because you cannot handle hearing people talk for 85 minutes about the weather. <laughs> like you can't handle that mentally. One of the most common cognitive symptoms is like forgetting stuff in a weird way. This one person messaged that they left their entire backpack, purse, and water bottle on the subway in New York City on the way to work. This person goes into work every single day with their backpack, a purse, and a, like a Stanley cup or something like that, and just got off the train at the right stop, but left everything. That's cognitive. That kind of stuff happens when you are actively grieving, usually more towards like the beginning points of it because your brain is having to get used to adapting to a higher level of day-to-day -day stress. So you like forget stuff or you you're making cookies and you use salt instead of sugar or you put your keys in the freezer. Like if you are seeing yourself do that, look at your body and be like, we are stressed. We are not able to handle all of the inputs that are coming into us every day. And then that's an opportunity to demonstrate more self-compassion to yourself because your brain can only handle what it can handle. And so if you're flubbing stuff, then that's a sign that you're like, what can I change in my life to try to alleviate this? So that's cognitive. And then the last category is emotional and all emotions are a part of grief, the positive emotions and the negative emotions. Joy is a part of grief hysterically laughing have you ever been at a funeral and for some reason you are just like trying to not laugh that is a part of grief that is normal that is natural so is despair hopelessness all of that okay so this is another part I'm really glad you touched on because in the other episode you kind of debunked the five stages of grief where that was a misconception that it's actually for the person who is dying not the mourners right and so I love that you bring up like all the emotions are normal. So yes, anger and sadness, but also envy and resentment and like any kind of emotion you have, like almost like replacing those five things and be like, no, all of it is fair game. 
Yeah. So the five stages. So I am a huge fan of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's a female thanatologist that wrote that theory. And she herself said it correctly, which was like the five stages were like the dying person looking at their own impending death. These were some of the stages that they moved through. But she herself never said that it was in this order. She herself in her book was like, you pivot around them. For some reason, American pop culture took this female thanatologist theory and made up how it works and how it is used. And it, oh my God, that's like one of the things that's very specific to my job that irritates me is whenever I see people like, especially posting on Instagram, they're like, the five stages are wrong. And I'm like, no, you have never read her actual book. You are wrong. You just watched like the big Lebowski and are making Instagram content about it. And I don't like it. I agree. <laughs> So anyway, on that note. <laughs> no, yeah, I love that. And I love that you talked about too how like joy is even part of the grieving process. Leah, what are some of the emotions that have come up for you as you've been grieving Ozzy? <laughs> All of them. Mm-hmm. Yep. The thing for me is to let the expectations of what grief is supposed to look like go and realize that you can have grief and something else, whether that is anger or joy or anxiety or stress or despair, it's grief and it's not just the solo emotion. And it took me a long time to realize that, (laughs) that I'm not broken if I'm happy one day and I'm not broken if I'm not crying every night and I'm not broken if, you know, I am dancing to music or enjoying myself there's so many layers to grief and it's not going to be the same every single day and just to let go of what society expects you to be and how long they expect you to be grieving and what it's supposed to look like because it's my experience and no one can replace that no one can walk in my shoes or walk the road that I'm walking it's my personal experience and it's my personal journey to figure out on my own So I think once I came to terms with that, it really kind of freed me in a way, which has been a good thing. I think that's so key. And even like in context of everything we've talked about during this episode, at the end of the day, your grief is going to look your own way because of all these different factors and all the different ways it can show up. And I think like giving ourselves plenty of space for that. And like you say, Cole, like not being hateful or resentful or trying to get rid of the grief, but just like learning to live with it. And Leah, as you say, like living around it and letting it have a home and and residency, a permanent residency, that's the most important thing. Yeah, grief is one of the best friends that you'll ever have in life. And unfortunately, it's a friend that we tend to be like not very nice to. It always shows up for us on our worst days. And that's like what the thing that we wish our other friends would do. And it's like, (laughs) you have a friend, grief is there, like they're doing it and you're not acknowledging them. So I hope that that's helpful for all of your listeners. And I also just think it's so wonderful what you guys are doing because it's so important to share your lived stories and your experiences because you provide a safe place for others who are just venturing out of the first early parts of that loss or that grief. And you're the people that are there with a handout stretch that's like, here, come up to me. I'll get you settled here. And then they're going to encounter other people down the path. and. So anyway, I just think one of the most courageous and powerful things that anyone can ever do is openly share honestly about the days and the moments that completely wrecked and changed their lives. I really love that. Well, just to wrap up, Leah and then Cole, could you 
leave listeners with one last piece of advice that you feel like they need to know going into this or going through it right now? Oh gosh, that's a tough question. (laughs) Take as long as you want to think of the answer. (laughs) So much to offer. I think I probably touched on this earlier, but I think that now recognizing that grief is the companion that I never knew I wanted or needed and to kind of accept it and let it guide me in my next steps. You know, it's not going to be overnight. It might be years like I've experienced, or it could be six months. I mean, you just never know how grief is going to affect each person. And that's okay. Accept your grief, accept where you are, let it walk alongside you. And you will get to a point eventually where you will want to live again and let it guide you in your next steps and shape your future. And I'm thankful for what it's taught me. And I'm thankful for the path that it's put me on because I feel like it's helped me to take advantage of every single day, to love deeper, to love harder, to want to live my best life for myself and for Ozzy. So it's been a healing journey to say the least. I love that. I think I would say if you are sitting there and you are just like, okay, give me the guide. Where is the piece of paper that is like, this is what to expect? The sooner you can let go of that, I think the better your experience might be. And the sooner you can stop looking for a framework, a guide, a step-by-step path, and the sooner you can switch to asking your grief what it needs today, you will have a completely different experience as you move through your loss. There's not a guide because every person is different. Every loss is different. And All of our formative experiences growing up are why all of our losses, even if we have the same type of loss, why none of us grieve the same way. It's because you're informed by your entire lived life and no one has lived exactly the same life as you. So I just would encourage people to take the energy that you're spending trying to find the guidebook, the step-by-step, the this is what to expect, and just look inward at what you already have been given, which is grief. Start asking grief. What do you need today? Where are you today? Where do you think I am today? How can we keep you moving? If you start there, you will be able to navigate and move through your loss. Mm, I love that so much. Well, thank you both. I really, really appreciate you sharing your own perspectives and side of the expertise to help, you know, a really hurting population. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. If anybody's interested in the work that I'm doing, I do have a free column about grief because there's so much to write about it, which you can find at colonperry.com. The column is called Grief or Madness. And then I have a book for kids coming out in 2024 about grief. And I have a book for adults coming out in 2025 about grief. Awesome. Thank you. You can find links to connect with any of today's participants in the show notes. This episode was generously sponsored by the Stites and Stevens families. In 2021, they lost their sweet grandson, Logan, in utero to a rare genetic syndrome. This episode is lovingly dedicated to Logan Reed Stites and to his dear parents, Brittany and Matt. Their grief of losing Logan will forever keep him in their hearts. A huge thank you to their donation to the Rare Life and the mission it supports. If you or a loved one wishes to sponsor an episode in memory or in honor of someone too, follow the link in the show notes. And then another big thanks to Alyssa Newtile, who, among other things, edits episodes and gets them all ready for your consumption. 
Also to our board of directors and to my husband, Justin Cheney, who is the reason I am able to carry on creating this important and heavy content. Join us next week for an episode with a rare mom and certified therapist as she shares specific therapies designed to treat trauma and the ins and outs of therapy in general. Heaven knows we all need it. Don't miss it. See you then.